Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 39 uh, is our sermon text this morning. I'll invite you to turn there with me as we give our attention again to the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after seeing, sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our God and Father, in this moment we do confess that our souls hope, long for your salvation. That we acknowledge in this moment our great need which is that we might be instructed by Your Word. We hope, Father, in You. We hope, as it were, in Your Word that the promises written on these pages, expressed within us by Your Holy Spirit, this is the source of our hope. And we come confessing that even now. And we ask for Your blessing. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. One of the, one of the tactics of warfare you've heard is, is to wound, not necessarily to kill. Uh, if you've watched a sniper movie ever, this is one of the things that they try to do. If they can wound a man, sometimes that's better than killing a man. Why is that? Because it, it takes... Um, other soldiers away from the battle in order to tend to that wounded man. They have to get him to care so that he doesn't die. So wounding a soldier might eliminate two to three more, whereas killing a soldier only eliminates one. Why is that? Well, because tending to that wounded soldier is preeminently a Christian ethic, isn't it? The ethic of the humanist is leave the wounded man to die. He's, he's made up of nothing more than particles, molecules. His life is meaningless. Leave him to die. 
But because we are men made in the image of God, we understand that what honors God is not to leave the wounded man, but to seek to preserve his life. And so when we see a community that is pervaded by a Christian ethic, what what do we find? We find people who reach out to one another. We're not a self-interested people. We're not primarily interested in our own convenience. But we will inconvenience ourselves to do good to others. It is a Christian ethic to care for the wounded. As a church, how are we doing demonstrating care for the wounded? How can we demonstrate care? What should be our strategy? Based on the condition of our neighborhood, how effective have we been? The church's gospel strategy is pretty simple, isn't it? What is our gospel strategy? It is to bring men to Christ for healing and nourishment. That's the church's gospel strategy, is to bring men to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing and for nourishment. And that's what we find in this passage this morning. We find that the Messiah restores all things, He magnifies God, and He nourishes His people. The Messiah uh, restores all things, He magnifies God, and He nourishes His people. Isn't that what we need? How often do you find yourself praying for restoration? How often might I, I could turn that around and say, how often do you feel downtrodden as you read the news? How many times does that prompt you to pray for restoration? How often does it prompt you to pray for a messianic work in your community? And how often does it prompt you to say, Lord, here I am, send me to do it. As we approach Matthew 15, it it represents roughly the midpoint in Matthew's Gospel. So I, I know you're saying, well, there are 28 chapters, 14 is the midpoint. But if you actually count the verses, um, the end of chapter 15 is like 49.8% or something like that of Matthew's Gospel. You can check my math later. So this is about the midpoint in the Gospel. And what we find is here in these verses that, is that after, after a brief sort of excursion. It wasn't a holiday for Jesus. He went to some Gentile regions and he, he healed one woman's daughter while he was there. It, for all intents and purposes, it was a very uneventful mission trip for the Lord. And even that healing, we could say, was, was given sort of reluctantly almost, wasn't it? She had to literally beg Jesus before he would even pay attention to her at all. Jesus has returned now to his home base. As you notice in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. This is sort of a headquarters. He's coming back now to his hometown, the region of Galilee, where he does all of his ministry. This is where Peter's house was located. This is where he called James and John and Peter and Andrew to go into the ministry. This is where he has been spending all of his time walking by this sea. 
And as he's walking along the seaside, he does something a little bit different this time. Notice what he does. He went up on the mountain and he sat down there. This isn't the first time that Jesus has gone to the mountain. But for some reason, Matthew points it out to us this time. Why might that be? Is it... Is this just a random event? Is there, is there a reason that Matthew points it out to us? And I would suggest to you that yes, there is a reason that Matthew points out to us that Jesus ascended the mountain. We've, we've talked about this before, but I'll just bring it back to your attention again. The significance of this mountaintop imagery. Roughly seven times in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus ascending a mountain. Now, am I saying to you that there wasn't really a mountain there? Of course not. But what I am suggesting to you is that Jesus chose this location and Matthew points it out to you for a reason. In Isaiah chapter 2, we are told that the prophetic by the prophet, that what we are to expect with reference to Jesus' kingdom is it is like a mountain that grows to be the greatest of all the mountains in all the earth and that eventually all the kingdoms will flow to this mountaintop. And I could take you to Hebrews chapter 12. In fact, why don't we do that right now? I want you to turn it over with me to Hebrews chapter 12. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a depiction of Christian worship. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Comparing Moses' mountain and Jesus' mountain. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing uh, fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, believer, Christian church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, this is a picture of Christian worship. We are gathered in worship to the throne of Jesus Christ, which is set... According to Psalm 2, where? On my holy hill. The significance of this mountaintop imagery is it depicts Christ as an ascended king, exercising his authority and dominion. And what do we learn? He has dominion over all things. Matthew has several references, as you turn back to Matthew 15, to mountains as an aspect of the geography of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 4, what happened? The devil took him to a very high mountain to tempt him. In Matthew 5, Jesus ascended a mountain to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. 
In chapter 14, we remember he went up on the mountain to pray as an image of Christ in his ascended glory, praying for you. As we will see, the mountain also depicts Jesus' messianic work. What do we mean when we say messianic? His work as a savior, the one who comes as the God-man to redeem a people unto God's glory. He is the go-between. You see, this is, this is the picture. He is the one who is greater than Moses. Why? Because Moses would come down the mountain and speak to the people and go back up the mountain and speak to God. But when Christ comes down, He takes a people up to the top of the mountain with Him. This is what we see in Matthew 15. This in Matthew 15 is the last significant interaction that you and I will see between Jesus and the crowds other than the wonderful trial of Christ. From chapters 16 to 18, generally speaking, Jesus is going to focus on his disciples. And then from chapter 19 on, we will shift and look ahead to the crucifixion of our Lord. I want you to notice just three points with me this morning. First of all, the Messiah restores all things in verses 29 to 30. The Messiah honors God, magnifies God. Verse 31 And in verses 32 to 39, the Messiah nourishes the souls of his people. First of all, the Messiah restores all things in verses 29 to 30. Notice what Jesus does. He's gone up on this mountain and he sat down there. This is exactly what he did when his disciples came to him in the Sermon on the Mount and he began to preach to them there. But, but what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is receiving unclean people to himself. What do we mean by unclean? Well, we read this in Leviticus chapter 21. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long. He was forbidden, do you understand, from coming into the camp of Israel and worshiping the Lord. If you had a limp, if you were born with some sort of defect in your body, if you were blind, if you were lame, you may not approach God's tabernacle. But what we learn here is that it is the role of the Messiah to heal these diseases. Where the law alone has no power to heal, Christ, by His grace, as our great Messiah, does heal the deficiencies of men, like a doctor who hangs out his shingle and waits for the patients. Jesus sat down on the mountain and waited for the people to come to him. And what did he do? He removed their infirmities. Look with me at verse 30. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. By his word 
And at his touch, those infirmities fled away from their bodies. Think about what's going on in this moment. Here are men born blind who are brought to the Lord and he speaks to them or touches them and suddenly they can see. They come to him, maybe they have been born without a hand and suddenly they have two whole healed hands. They walk with a limp. Maybe they are paraplegic and they have to be born to Christ. This is what's happening. These men are going out into their communities. They are lifting up those who cannot come themselves and they bring them to Christ for healing and He speaks healing upon them. This is a picture of the Christian mission. There are many in our communities who cannot come to Christ on their own. Why not? Because they don't know. They don't know the gospel. They need someone to teach them. They need someone to call them to repentance. They need someone to say to them, this is the righteous standard of our God. And if you don't meet it, like all who are fallen, you will be condemned. But there's hope for you. If you come to Christ, He will receive you and He will forgive you and you will be made whole. Not physically per se, but spiritually. He will heal your soul, which is an even greater work. And do you know what God has done? What has Jesus said about the church of Jesus Christ? It is like a city set where? On a mountain. And our light is to shine in all the world. Friends, there's no hope apart from you speaking it. These blind men, these crippled men, these lame men, these deaf men, if they had no friends to bring them to Christ, they wouldn't have come. And you reflect on this passage with me and think, well, we live in hopeless times. Well, how does that reflect on us? Has the church of Jesus Christ forgotten its message? Have we forgotten our mission? Have we forgotten that we have to come down from the mountain with Christ to bring other men to Him? First Corinthians chapter 15 reminds us that Christ has ascended His throne and He is exercising His dominion on His earth until what point? All his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Christ is reigning. We don't doubt that. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he demonstrates it here by healing these men. The diseases flee away. If they are um, demonized, the demons have to flee. There, there's no, there is no authority which is above him. It's all beneath him. But the way that he exercises that authority is through your hands and feet. We have to bring men to Jesus. 
This is how the gospel works. Perhaps our communities are broken because churches no longer take the gospel out. If you're worried about the economy, preach the gospel. If you're worried about stolen elections, preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ restores all things. Men who were lazy become ethical, and they work. Why? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. A sound economy, faithful leadership are all the product of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in and through the Spirit of God. Maybe we've become distracted by meaningless things. And this doesn't mean that we don't vote or don't participate in certain forms of activism or pray. But if we're praying aright, it ought to lead us to action. Matthew Henry says, he that knows the worth of souls would, do a great, would go a great way to help to save one from death and Satan's power. The Messiah restores all things. Two, the Messiah magnifies God. This is an amazing picture. Look at it with me, verse 31. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Think about this with me for just a second. Um, You have all these healthy people. And maybe this represents all of us who we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and when you study your, the, your Bible and when you pray, the Lord gives you a, a joy. He gives you a peace, a serenity that passes all understanding. And there's joy. But when, when you join with someone else and you pray together and you sing together, even if they don't sing all that great, your joy is enhanced. And the more there are, the greater your joy. Now think of this. These people perhaps at once said, oh, I don't want to go get Bob. He's so heavy. And his friend says, I'll help you. Let's go together and let's get Bob and let's bring him to Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's not just two men. They're singing God's praises together. There are three voices. And one of them couldn't speak at all for a period of time in his life. And one of them, he couldn't stand up. And all of a sudden, he stands up. And they're raising not just one hand, but two whole hands. And these are people, understand, who before couldn't approach the temple of God. Some of them couldn't even see it. But because they had friends who brought them to Christ, now they can stand and sing. And it's not just two men, but three men lifting their voices and singing for the glory of God. This is the work of the Messiah. Do you want to see your community rejoicing in the salvation of Christ? This is the work of the Messiah. All worshiping together. And think about this. The, 
these men who have been singing the songs of Zion healthy their whole lives, now they're singing them with men who haven't been able to sing before. And those well men are singing over the work of God in that sick man's life. I mean, when is the last time you rejoiced over God's work in someone else's life? When is the last time you saw it? This is the Messiah's work. He's not just healing men to heal them. He's healing them to magnify His Father. And He uses you and me to gather them up, to bring them to Christ, so that together we might rejoice in, the, in God's bounty. Jesus, notice, He never, Jesus never directs us to, to worship a nondescript higher power. You see that? And Jesus never directs us to worship some nondescript God. They didn't worship a God. They didn't worship the God of their imagination. They worshiped the God of Israel. And you know that you have come to the Messiah if through Him you are filled with praise for the one true triune God of heaven and earth. Thirdly, the Messiah nourishes His people. We see this in verses 32 to 39, the Messiah nourishes His people. So He he restores all things. He magnifies the one true God and He nourishes His people thirdly. Look with me at verse 32. Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. Um... This is the second feeding story. We saw the first one in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus fed 5,000 men. And now we have the second feeding story of 4,000 men and, and their wives and their children. And here, as in the first feeding story, Jesus is moved with compassion. And we, we cannot rush past that. Um, you think of yourself just for a second and you've had a long day at work, lots of demands on you, um, and you come home and you sit down in your recliner and you stretch your feet out and your kids come up and they say, Mommy, Daddy, play with us. And you say, ah. Usually there's not a lot of compassion here. Um... We don't know when the last time Jesus stopped for a break was, and if you can read through the gospel and tell me, oh, this is the moment that he stretched his feet out, I'd be happy to learn it. If you read the gospel, one day leads into the next. 
all of a sudden, we, we read here in verse 32 that they've been with Jesus for three days. Has he been on top of the mountain healing people? No, he did have a real human body. He did require rest. But one of the things that we find is that, that this, is, this is not like an ordinary man. Why? Because when an ordinary man would be frustrated and say, I just need a minute, he's moved with compassion. And I think that's so important for you because as you reflect on that, there is never a moment that you will wear out his compassion and his pity for you. He knows how weak you are. Do you understand that? And he knows your weaknesses better than you. He, he sees the very intricacies of your soul. He knows the ways that you can sin that you haven't imagined yet. And he will never wear out with compassion for you. I used to work, as you know, in the bank and... And um, we, one year, built a new building. We had outgrown the one in downtown Montgomery and decided to build a new headquarters out in East Montgomery, a very nice facility. And it was really interesting because um, the, our bank had two elevators, one for, one for the common employees like me and one for all of our C-suite level employees to to go up in. Our CEO, they had their own special elevator so they didn't have to be bothered with all the common people like me. But notice here that Jesus doesn't separate himself from the people. He thinks about them. He condescends to them. He sits down with them. He provides for them. And look, he's even thinking ahead to the needs that they will have to provide for them. This is why Romans 8.28 can say he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he knows the needs you will have and is already providing for those too. Why? Because he's compassionate. He anticipates your troubles. And this should be an area of praise for us as well, that I thank you, Lord, for the areas where I don't sense lack. There are so many where I, I sense my needs, but there are lots of areas when you sit down to think of them where you can say, oh, I, th he's provided for me there. Thank you. Christ has moved with compassion and he interestingly, magnifies the disciples' ignorance. Now, I will tell you that there, men struggle with this part. Look, look with me at verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, why do you think men would struggle with that verse? Well, here's why. Because... Just a few days ago, not more than a month ago, we were in Matthew 14, and they were in the same situation, and they came to Jesus, and they said, all we have are five loaves and a few fish. How are we going to feed this great people? And so commentators will say, well, this doesn't make any sense. How could they not have learned from what happened before? In fact, one dissertation on this, the, the guy says this, the evangelist has composed his own story as a backdrop for the traditional story 
thereby controlling how the reader perceives the traditional story. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the feeding of the 5,000 was totally made up. Mark made it up because there's no way that these guys would have asked the same question two times. They've already seen Jesus feed these people before. Shouldn't they have just said, come to him like the Pez dispenser and said, can you pop out some more bread and fish? Well, he definitely didn't make the story up. But I want you to notice, and we're going to have to develop just a little bit of this this morning, but one of the things that that you ought to notice is that Matthew is showing you the disciples' ignorance. Do you you remember um, just back a few verses ago? Turn back with me to 1515. We looked at this um, last week. But I want you to see verses, verse, chapter 15, verse 15. But Peter said to him, what did he say? Explain the parable to us. And, and that's significant because when we go to Tyre and Sidon, here is a Gentile woman. She doesn't ask for an explanation. She just knows what it means. Well, why doesn't Peter know? Isn't he the chief apostle at this? Is, isn't that who this is? And then we flip over here, and we've, we've already encountered this scene before. And the men seem like they still don't understand. Well, in the midst of Jesus exercising His compassion, we see the disciples' ignorance. And just one thing to take away from that is that Jesus uses humble men, not great men, to minister to the souls of others. When Christ, His compassion flows out into the community, He's not using great men or men who are great in their own eyes, but He takes these disciples whom we say, how can can they not get this? How are they asking the same question again? Those are the men that Christ uses to minister His compassion to the crowd. These are the same kinds of men who went into town to get their friends to bring them to Jesus. When we are humble, we acknowledge that of ourselves we have nothing to offer hurting men. No special knowledge. No special wisdom. All we can do is point to Christ. And what does he do? He miraculously feeds the people. Directing the crowd to sit down, verse 35, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Same formula that we saw before. And they all ate, just like before, and they were satisfied just like before, and they took up this time seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. 4,000 men, a lesser miracle. 5,000 was the greater miracle. Now it's just 4,000. No problem. He's handing it out so much so that they can go out and take up seven baskets of broken pieces. 
simply point out to you that it wasn't 12 as before. This time, seven baskets. Nothing you invest to Christ will be returned to you in an inferior form. Their seven measly loaves were turned into seven baskets of food. And what we remember from this is that not only does Jesus restore all things, but He goes beyond restoring. He doesn't just make whole. He goes beyond that and feeds and nourishes the souls of His people. And in Jesus, as the Messiah, you have a bottomless fountain of provision for your soul. Are you hurting? Are you lonely? Are you weary? Are you worn out? Are you tired? Are you sad? What do you need? Christ has it. Do you know people who are weary, hurting, sad, worn out, fed up with life, ready to end it? You you know a fountain of life. You'll permit me one more mountain reference. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On the mountain of God, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. This is no Boone's farm. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And when we come to the mountain of God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and we bring others with them, we bring them to a feast spread by Christ himself, a feast that we, that we feast upon by our soul, the very inner man, that man that's broken and needs nourishment. We come to the Messiah who restores all things, who magnifies God and nourishes His people. As Ezekiel's prophecy closes, he describes a great river that flows out from God's temple. It gradually gets deeper, not shallower. And this river is the Holy Spirit coming out from New Covenant Presbyterian Church. And from the soul of every believer, this river is the Holy Spirit ministering in and through the people of God. And as you reflect on this text today, I would ask you to think about two things. One, how are you seeking restoration and nourishment in and through Jesus Christ? And how are you living as a source of restoration and nourishment for the lost world around you?
as we live this out. Together with Christ, we magnify the triune God of grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do pray and ask that this river of life, this Holy Spirit, would go out from Christ and nourish our land. Lord, more than rain, more than rain, we need these rivers of living water. And you have filled us, your people, with this abundant life. And we ask that you would use us now for your glory in this way, for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.